This is the Pink Smoke Podcast, the official podcast of PinkSmoke.com. Welcome, everybody. This is one of our book episodes that we're doing for the month of April. And it is myself. I'm joined by Christopher Funderberg and guest Wendy Mays. Hey, Wendy, how you doing? Hi, how you guys doing? Great. We love Wendy Mays. Wendy Mays, the great and terrible, is on the show to talk. <laughs> I was going to carry with us. I will I take gonna, that. I was going to ask, can we call you the Wendigo for the rest of this episode? Oh, please do. That would be great. The Wendigo, the massive and unsettling thing that casts a dark shadow over the podcast. Is that? It's kind of true. I, I accept that. <laughs> now, John, why did we have to have Wendy on this show? What are we doing? I'm fucking up your intro. You take charge, John. I'll sit back. <laughs> Not at all. We had Wendy Mays on the show because she runs a podcast called Pet Cinematary, the namesake of which is, of course, the Stephen King classic Pet Cemetery, which will be the subject of today's show. We all read the book. We all saw the new movie that just came out. We'll be talking about a little bit of everything. Uh, guys, let me just throw this out there. Are you guys Stephen King fans at all? Yes, but just slight, like... Uh, kind of a, a recent fan. I will say that a recent fan. Uh, I grew up with my dad constantly reading his books. Um, and so I always thought that they were kind of trash books. And I didn't believe that Stephen King actually wrote some of the books because he put them out so quickly that I didn't understand how that was possible. And now I understand it's because of cocaine. So, <laughs> but so I never really read them, but I yeah, started but now that later in life and you're really into cocaine. You love the books Exactly. Yeah. And it, I, I'm sad that like I've found him now because my dad is dead. So I don't have the a thing of going back to my dad and being like, you're right about these books. These books are really great and fun. Like I like them. Uh, and talking to him about it. So it's a little bit of a sad find, but yeah, I, I like him. Uh, I had not read virtually any Stephen King before we went to read this book, before we decided to do this episode, John, with Wendy. Um, I had tried reading The Stand when I was in high school, the unabridged version, and I read about 350 pages and thought, this thing is never going to fucking start. And I threw it in the trash <laughs> and never thought about reading any Stephen King again, but I read some of his short stories and I actually read like a handful of short stories that I really liked, like um, Survivor Type and the one where the kid opens his eyes in the teleporter. John, what's that one called? Uh, the Jaunt. The Jaunt. And I really liked those, but I, nothing, to me, Stephen King was not something that my dad read. My association with Stephen King was like, Every school in the world in like 10th grade had a kid who sat in like the back of the class and just read Stephen King books below his desk all year. You know that fucking kid? Like that's- That was me. That was me. <laughs> you were looking just, at me. Just some kid who wanted to be anywhere but school, like reading Christine in his lap in trigonometry, you know? And I just- you know, I was a pretentious teenager. So I was like, I'm going to read these old H.L. Mencken editorials instead of, you know, <laughs> instead of entertaining books. So I never read any of it. And this is, this is basically my first one. Although I should say I've seen, I believe, literally every single movie based on his work. So I don't know if that counts. John, what about you? Besides being a 
teenage back of the room Stephen King reader. Not even teenage. I'm talking middle school. Like that was my sixth grade. You know, was just reading every single thing Stephen King wrote up to that point, which would have been 1991, 92, whatever it was. Um, so I was a huge, huge Stephen King guy. Uh, and again, sort of like Wendy, I had like the adult influence. My uncle collected all like the first edition hardbacks and stuff. Mm-hmm. Always bought the new Stephen King book every time, you know, every the, on opening day, whatever day it came out. And um, so for a good, a good two years, I read everything he wrote and then nothing. Then I stopped reading him for 20 years. <laughs> um, saw all the movies, but then only recently went back to start reading some of the stuff that I, you know, over the last 20 years that had come out. So uh, I like Wendy, I guess you could say. I kind of have come back to Stephen King a little bit and been enjoying him. Although I, 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 I will admit that a lot of the books, all the novels are not great. Not Certainly not as good as a lot of the short stories, which are always usually pretty good. I think Stephen King is somebody who always has his heart in the right place. Like he's a really... The phrase I'm going to use is he's a noble storyteller. You know, I feel like he really understands what he wants to get across and does a good job proving that he's able to, even if the technique is not always there. You know, even if it's kind of a cheesy, repetitive sort of writing style that he kind of falls back on. I mean, I guess that just comes from being so prolific, right? You're obviously going to kind of use the same sort of gimmicks and tricks and plot devices and john i want to talk about all this in depth let's not dive into it yet let's not okay (laughs) that's just my experience with Stephen. yeah i thought well because you're bringing up a lot of stuff that i think is uh, like what he is as a writer and what i think works or and doesn't work about him and what i think is really remarkable about him as a writer and what i think is really terrible about him as a writer based on my limited experience with him. I feel like in this intro, I should mention, I've met him twice. I got to spend a couple hours with him each time when I was programming the movie theater because he did book signings at each of them. And so he signed a ton of copies of the new Dark Tower book. And I just sort of stood there and hung around with him while he was signing them up in the top of the, uh, the theater. Uh, like the upstairs area. And the you also got an autograph from my uncle, which I appreciate. Oh, I don't even remember doing yeah, that. Yeah, I got it for him for his birthday. Oh, that's great. Well, I'm glad I did that. See, I'm not a total monster, John. But so I got to, so I've actually gotten to talk to Stephen King for for a, a fair amount of time. And if anything, I was reading Pet Cemetery and thinking, is any of this, uh, my experience with him, enriched by having met him and chatted with me super nice dude incredibly he's not like personable he's not like a phony but you can have an actual conversation with him which is very rare when you meet famous people like he will talk to you like a human being um he's a very blue collar kind of dude yeah very yes with the people we talked a lot about I didn't realize, I knew he was a baseball fan, so we talked about, um, it was the Red Sox playoff game where they kept uh, Pedro Martinez in for the extra innings because he had been pitching so well and then he got rocked. And I knew, I had heard he was a Red Sox fan, so I tried to talk to him about that a little. I didn't realize he's a Red Sox fan the way I'm an Eagles fan, where just like the emotional reaction he had was like, oh shit, I shouldn't have brought this up. This is like way out of like my depth for this. Just like how huge of a reaction he's having to my like, no, I think it's good they left him in. I think it was his game to lose and him just like steam about to shoot out of his ears at that. That's cool. I'll just just say I stumbled upon King once um, when I was 21 years old or so. 
at Rockefeller Plaza, they were setting up all these chairs and my girlfriend and I were just walking around. We we're like, what are you doing? They're like, oh, we're having a, Stephen King's going to read from his new book. So of course we sat down and, you know, listened to him read and answer questions and stuff. And about a year later, a friend of mine from high school was like, I just saw you on Bravo. They, they were televising some Stephen King thing and you were sitting there talking to him. It's <laughs> like, huh, I did not know they were recording that. Uh, uh, what was the new book? What were they reading? That was Bag of Bones. Okay. Wendy, any tangentially related Stephen King anecdotes to fill this out? No, I've oh, never met the man. I'm sorry. You haven't, but have you met any actors from the new film, which we're we'll also <laughs> be discussing? Uh, right unfortunately, I did not get to meet them, but I was at the Brooklyn screening uh, that I guess was a sort of premiere uh, where all the actors, except for John Lithgow, was at. And then most importantly, Tonic the Cat was there, uh, the cat that plays Good Church in the new film. Um, and he had a little tie on and it was very cute and adorable. But I didn't get to meet him, unfortunately, but he was there. That's did amazing. He, did he play the good, uh, the good yeah. church or the bad church? No, he played. So church. I mean, uh, tonic mainly played the good cat, uh, church, and then um, Leo, the cat named Leo, mainly played uh, undead church. So okay. there was those two cats, and then there was like two more cats. But tell the truth. Were you disappointed to not meet Leo? Tell the truth, Wendy. <laughs> well, I don't. Apparently, Leo's a little bit more difficult, and so he doesn't get taken around as much as uh, Tonic does. Well, he's uh, the true artist and the true performer. Exactly. Goes yeah. without saying. Exactly. He's so. A loud uh, <laughs> to be a diva. I think that they were both rescue cats that they specifically trained oh. for the film. So I don't think either one of them had acted before, and it's kind of amazing. They do a great job in the film. That's unbelievable. That's actually yeah. super remarkable. I never yeah. guessed that. That's yeah, by like far my the, favorite thing about the new movie yeah. is the cat performances. <laughs> well, the directors at the screening talked about the cat a little bit, and they were like, well, in the first film, you have like a blue Russian, um, and they put some theory out there about why they got a blue Russian for the movie, which was silly. Um, and then so they were like so we wanted to get like in the book he's described as this but then if you look at the cover the original cover it's this like tabby cat and so we went with that look we went with the original covers look of of what church the cat is and so they got a main coon they got a bunch of main coons for the for the book i mean for the film oh that's cool yeah that's a uh... Based on my experience with the movie, that's way more thought than I would have expected <laughs> to put into any decision they made. The the both of the directors were clearly cat people, so yeah. I think the cat was one of the favorite parts, probably about doing the movie for them. Uh, that, that's that's probably their pitch. They were just like, "Look, we don't know movies, clearly, <laughs> but we do know cats." But we both have cats that we really like, and we can't wait to like make church's part bigger in this film than it was originally <laughs> we've spent a lot of time thinking about how we'd love to bring cats back from the dead and then it turns out there's a book about it <laughs> exactly <laughs> well obviously we want to get into this book but before we do since we're just on the subject i just want to ask wendy can you think of a good example of an excellent pet performance in a horror movie Oh, in a Anything horror jump movie? to your mind? Yeah. Um, shoot, in a horror movie. Um, 
There's so many. I mean, there's so many cats in horror movies, which is kind of great. And then you just have like, I mean, if you want to go. What's your favorite cat? horror movie performance oh well that's how i was gonna say um the dog from the thing is my ultimate animal yeah acting performance and that's a horror film so i'll, I'll go with that one um there's a really bad film called uh uninvited <laughs> which yeah <laughs> <laughs> i don't the cat doesn't really do anything but the cat puppet is amazing <laughs> uh, <laughs> um there's a really great one. Um, it's like an anthology film. Oh, I forget what it's called. But it uh, it has like um, Peter, what's his face in it? Um, McNichol. Peter McNichol. No, the great horror guy. Um, Peter Cushing? Yes, it has Peter okay. Cushing in it. Uh, and it's there's one scene where he falls down the steps, like exercise kind of style uh, like those type of steps and he falls down those steps because he's being attacked by like 800 cats it's really great um i don't know but the, but ultimately my my favorite horror film animal is probably uh the dog from from the thing see i immediately thought of the dog from cujo who i think is phenomenal yeah that dog's really good also the people that had to be in the dog suit were really good yeah <laughs> That's great. I love that movie too. I would say the white dog dogs are all terrific too. If you're going to count that as a horror movie. Yeah. 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 Those guys are really good. That's a great one too. Yeah. They're, they're terrific. So but, John. Oh yeah. Oh, no, go ahead. I was gonna say, shall we do with these pulp fiction uh, podcasts? We do an aperitif selection. Each one of us will pick a film or a book or a piece of music or whatever we want to pair with the book we're talking about, and then we do a dessert selections afterwards. And I think we should get into that, shouldn't we, John? Absolutely, Chris. Would you like to go first, Wendy Mays? Would you like to, to kick it off, or would you like to go last? Your choice, uh, as our guest. Uh, oh, uh, um, I'll go first, because I don't know that mine really has anything to do with what we're talking about. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so uh, when thinking about kind of animals and books and novels, I couldn't really think of anything, uh, except, except for this one. And it's a story that, um, my mom used to read me all the time as a kid. And it was like my favorite book as a child, which probably speaks volumes about how I turned out the way I am. But, um, there's a book called Island of the Blue Dolphins. Oh, yeah. Yeah, by Scott O'Dell. Get out of here. I was just reading that to my daughter last night. Really? I swear to God. Yeah, my mom used to read it to me all the time. And then once I learned how to read, I read it all the time. It was like my favorite book growing up. Oh, but fuck those dogs, though. (laughs) Yeah, but, well, have you read the whole book? Uh, Yeah, yeah. but I I was like, she becomes friends with the dogs. (laughs) Uh, I know, but spoilers, what happens in the middle of the book is horrible. Yeah, I haven't read it in a really long time. But Very, very Pet Cemetery-esque. It's a good choice. Yeah, but anytime I see it like in a thrift store, I always pick it up. So I have like three copies of this book for some weird reason. Um, but yeah, so it's the... Uh, uh, it's a story about this like 12 year old girl that's stranded alone um, for years off the off uh, off on an island off the coast of California. Um, and she, it's kind of just what she goes through. She her whole tribe gets taken away off this island, but she um, sees that her brother 
isn't with the group and she goes to get him and by the time she gets him and comes back they've left um unfortunately her brother then dies <laughs> and then she is left alone for many 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 years uh by herself and then the only people that she really not people but only creatures that she has are the creatures of the island um and she befriends some dogs and then she also like befriends like an otter i think um yeah it's just a so it's a little bit touches a little bit on like you know themes of loss and <laughs> and loneliness i guess in a similar way but that was the first book that i i thought of because i loved it so much as a kid it's a great choice and it's also interesting that because Pet Cemetery is so much about childhood and parents' relationship to their kids that you picked a book that was important to you as a kid that your mom had read to you a lot. Do you yeah. think that was in the back of your mind with that selection? I don't know. That's and I psychologize. I know. Nice psychology bit there. I, I, I don't know. It's just automatically the first book that I think of. Um, when somebody mentions animals in a book, it's, I just go for that one. Um, probably because I have such a terrible memory that I can't remember what I've read in other books. Uh, and this one always struck out to me and it has uh, an animal in the title. So I just go for it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, John. That's a great pick. It's another great traumatic <laughs> childhood read <laughs> that one, but a terrific book. Uh, I love it. And I love that I'm rereading it now. Um, so what works for me about, the book isn't so much the stuff with church. What works for me about the book, obviously, is the, the, the grief aspect, you know, the whole idea of losing a child and, it, you know, reacting and just the really human sort of subplot that goes on that kind of leads up to the supernatural tragic events. Um, it was so, so exciting to get to see the second horror movie ever made about grief this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's. I feel like they're going to make more now that they've got yeah. two out there. <laughs> Obviously, there have been movies about grief in the past. One in particular, uh, I, I think you should definitely watch before invo getting involved in the Pet Cemetery book, uh, is because a, a major subplot in Pet Cemetery involves Timmy Baderman, who is a World War II soldier, yeah. shipped back home in a box, um, who gets buried in the Micmac burial ground and brought back to life and comes back wrong. I would be shocked to hear that Stephen King wasn't inspired by Death Dream, the Bob Clark film from 1973, yeah. uh, which is about a Vietnam soldier who's killed and then uh, turns up back home changed, different. You know, it's a very political horror movie about obviously soldiers coming back from Vietnam as different people told through a supernatural, you know, sort of think as he's sort of a, a revenant like they are in, in Pet Cemetery, where he's like a vampire who has to kill people and take their blood to you know sustain his ghastly form there's also a dog murder in it so that's relevant oh. i know sorry so it's a horrible dog murder oh, um no. yeah um, it's really it's a warning they lay it on <laughs> thick too and it's it's yeah <laughs> so it's uh also you know as much as it is about you know this destruction of this family and the death of one of the parents in the end much like Pet Cemetery, it's got an even broader sort of thing about, you know, sort of the grieving of a nation and how it sort of is dealing with it in this weird kind of, through this weird kind of supernatural story. I should also bring up just because Kevin Marr had recommended this to me, uh, the 
1977 TV movie Dead of Night, directed by Dan Curtis, is an anthology film uh, written by Richard Matheson, much like uh, Trilogy of Terror that they worked on together as well. The last segment's called Bobby. Uh, and I'd hi- if you like Pet Cemetery, I'd highly recommend watching that as well. It's on YouTube. But uh, the last segment, Bobby, very Pet Cemetery esque. So I'll just throw that one out there too. That's a that's a great selection, John. You you haven't seen the movie, Wendy? No, I haven't seen either one of those. Interesting. My pick is uh, I felt like to do a service to the book and the movie to give you something uh, truly. Uh, to put you in the right mindset, it's a 1993 uh, zombie film directed by Bob Balaban called My Boyfriend's Back, <laughs> in, which, in which Johnny Dingle is killed and comes back to life to take his girlfriend to the prom. And he comes back not quite right. He comes back as, as a cannibal. He comes back and starts decaying. And uh, it's, I mean, it's a truly terrible movie. Joe Bob Briggs has a whole uh, thing about how uh, on Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Bob Balaban was talking with Francois Truffaut and Bob Balaban was like, I'm thinking about getting into directing and Francois Truffaut was like, here's my advice. Only make a movie about the things that you care about. For me, it is men and women and their relationship to their children. These are the only things I want to make movies about. And Bob Balaban said, got it. I'm going to make my boyfriend's back. That is my next move. <laughs> Going to take your advice to to heart, Trufo. Um, it's you know, it's it's it's, it's it, there, you, there's certain character actors like Paul Dewey, uh, Paul Dooley, and and Edward Herman, and Pete Cloris Leachman, and stuff like that that are in it that make it like um, you know, it's a certain kind of like super cheese ball thing that I think is. I'm going to be much more hard on both Pet Sedimentary, the book, and the new movie. I just wanted to remind myself of like how how bad this concept can be done. <laughs> put myself in the rhyme to be fair to these other things, which aren't nearly as bad as this impossibly terrible movie. Well, it's funny because my boyfriend's back sort of is a comedy version of Death Dream in a way, <laughs> especially how, yes. you know, because it's Bob Balaban, he does the whole sort of 50s nuclear family greaser teenager sort of yes. thing that very, you know that dream Steven, kind of does and it's very stephen kingy and it's like tropes you know my boyfriend's back has that same like baby boomer stuck in the past happy days feel to it you know what i mean mm-hmm. like it, it's there's something about its tone that i think it's like moronic stephen king it's like if you buried a stephen king movie and it came back to life it would be my boyfriend's back <laughs> Um, Wendy, are you a fan of it? Do you agree <laughs> with this controversial assertion that Tracy Lind is her generation's greatest actress? <laughs> uh, no, uh, but uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's in it. So, you know, oh. it's got to be worth something. <laughs> I did not remember that. It's probably, oh, I, I think he has a very, very small role in it. Probably doesn't, and it doesn't, and I, roles. and, um, Matthew Fox and Matthew McConaughey. McConaughey's in it too. McConaughey's in it too. Because I remember that from like his prehistory of like disreputable horror related stuff. Yeah. (laughs) So obviously it was a bouncing board for a lot of great people. (laughs) Chris, now that you now that you revealed your pick, I'm surprised you didn't go with idle hands, honestly. (laughs) I just would have ended up, you know. 
I don't know what I would have ended up doing. Who the hell knows? Let's get off of that thought and move on to something else. <laughs> so, um, let, so getting into the book, yeah. um, let me ask Wendy. Yeah. Do you, uh, you being a fan of pets in in fiction, do you do you, do you think of the book more as a uh, pet horror story or more as a grief horror story? No, I think it's a grief horror story. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean the the cat definitely plays a part in it, and I think obvi- um, it's well known that it was inspired by a cat death. Um, but I think in, overall, it's just it got his feelings, and I guess his son had a brief scare, almost dying one time. Um, and so I think it's more about just grief in general and how we deal with it. Yeah, um, the varieties of way of dealing with it. And you're referring to the the actual thing where his son runs out into the road. Stephen King tells talks about how that happened to his son, where he just barely like caught the kids like overalls yeah. with his fingers and prevented him from running out into the street, which inspired it. And then his daughter's cat, I didn't know this, you and John were telling me, his daughter's cat, Smucky, died? What is the story yeah. there? So Smucky, Smucky's, uh, Smucky the cat, Stephen King's daughter's cat, um, was killed by a passing truck. Um, so he was killed by a car. And then what just you know, they had to explain death to the daughter and, and kind of go through that this is just a part of life, everything dies and whatnot. And then later on that night, he actually uh, witnessed his daughter. He didn't, he heard something and uh, he went downstairs or something like that and saw his daughter like, just like slamming stuff around and being really angry and just like, just yelling. And she's like, let God have his own cat. Smucky was my cat. God, and just being really angry yeah. that God had taken this thing away from her that was hers and hers alone. Yeah. And uh, he said it was just such a raw emotional outburst that he he loved his daughter more than anything after that moment. But <laughs> he was just like, yeah, that's exactly what grief is, is that you get angry and something has been taken away from you that you absolutely adored and it's unfair. Yeah. And just so we should lay out the plot, it's a very straight-ahead plot. A doctor moves to a small town in Maine to be the doctor for the local college. As they get settled in, cat gets run over. His daughter's cat gets run over by a truck. His across-the-street neighbor, Judd Crandall, takes him to this secret Micmac Indian burial ground way out in the woods, way past the pet cemetery, buries the cat in there, and then the cat comes back. Then the doctor's spoilers, but I feel like everybody knows the basics of this movie. The the doctor's son, two-year-old son, then gets hit by a truck as well and is taken and buried in the Micmac burial ground, and he also comes back. That is the basic plot of both movies and the book, although both of them change details about it. What we're dealing with is a plot about a guy who makes every wrong decision he possibly can, which (laughs) in, in the book you really appreciate because... King spends pages and pages within Lewis Creed's mind, the doctor, the father character, uh, where he's thinking over these things. He's thinking over the possibilities, what his actions could be, whether it's a good idea to bury his son out in this uh, secret cemetery where he knows he's going to come back wrong. And basically, you know, convincing himself that it's the worst idea possible and then doing it anyway, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, sort of, I think, what he's getting at with the whole grief thing. Obviously Stephen King does 
death very well when you think about Stand By Me, for example, and what like the Ray Brower's body means for these kids who are facing death for the first time. And through the death of the cat, you know, the daughter is kind of coming to terms with what death is and the parents are struggling with the correct way to teach death to this kid, you know, the right way to approach it. Um, so I think, you know, it's got that leading up to it, but then it kind of turns over once Gage is killed, the two-year-old son is killed, it kind of becomes Lewis's story. And that's when it just becomes, you know, for, even though he's the one who told Ellie, the daughter, death's okay, it's natural, everyone should actually look forward to it, it's peaceful, it's a natural part of life, and that his wife should, you know, accept that, you know, kids should learn about death and that it should be something that's out in the open and not feared. He becomes the one who can accept it. Ultimately, he's the one who, you know, wants to keep bringing his pets and his children back in zombie form. Right. Well, the first time like church is buried, he doesn't realize what's going to happen with church. Yeah. That's more Jed just putting that on him. And it's once he discovers that it can come back, you know, uh, that's kind of when he has the idea for his son. But I think originally it's all Judd. It's all Judd's fault. Fucking Judd. (laughs) Fucking Judd. The book makes that much more clear though. The book makes it, like there's something about knowing about this place that that there's it haunts you. that compels you to it, yeah. that that draws you to it, and basically once you know about it, it, it gets a hold of your mind, right? And that you can't, you know, it's a bad idea, and that's what I agree with you, John. That's very interesting. This the sequences where Lewis Creed is trying to work through the thought process of why to do it or not do it. And the decisions are really bad and he knows they're bad, but he's like compelled to do it. Um, John, you and I both have kids. Your daughter is nine and the younger one is four or five. She's five. She's five. She's five. Uh, I have a son who's eight. He's turning nine in about a week and a half. Wendy, you don't have any kids. Um, how hard was it? for you to talk to your cats about death though like when you explain death to your cats was that a difficult conversation no i was gonna say do you read this uh and do you feel like how much heat do you feel on the family stuff because i've got to say i fucking hated the experience of reading this book it made me so miserable to have to spend time with this stuff in a way that I think is a credit to King. I think what John is saying is true, that it's very sincere. Does that stuff still hit you really hard or is it, does it make the book more like theoretical in some way? Like, is this a fun read to you? Well, I mean, I think even if you don't have children, you, you have grief, you, you lose people and things that are very important to you. Um, so, I mean, everybody goes through this process and I've, I've had friends that have read this book prior to having children and after having children. And they always say it hits harder after having children, obviously. Um, but you know, for those that don't have children, aren't going to have children, it, it doesn't mean that you can't feel the same, the same grief that everybody else that has yeah. children's like, it's, it's not like you can't. Well, well, I'm sorry to hear you had that experience too then Wendy. Yeah. I'm just saying <laughs> like, it's, it's not like you can't identify with the pain that this family is going through. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's, it's definitely, I, I think 
the way that King writes about death in this book is really beautiful because it goes through every layer of grief that you have. Um, so there's the rational side that the doctor has in the beginning. There's also how the mother views death and the experience that she went through and why she hates yeah. to talk about it and, and doesn't like to think about death. And she has a guilt about death. Um, and then, you know, you take into that, like the daughter that, um, that it was based on, you know, of being like this, of the anger of having something yeah. taken away from you, which is ultimately what the, you know, um, what Lewis Creed kind of goes to at the end is like, he's angry. He's like, what the fuck? God took my kid away. That is not fair. Uh, he should have lived a very long life, which is what everybody feels when they experience grief. Um, so it goes through all these many stages. Become but- an Olympic swimmer. Exactly. Exactly. He should have done all these great things that that passage is so great where he just kind of goes through what Gage's life would have been like. And then he's slapped back into the cemetery uh, and the hard realization that like, nope, my son isn't going to do any of those things. Uh, I hated it so much. I hated it because I knew it's also like, you know, it's a fake out. You know, it's it's like you're forcing me to read this shit. Exactly. Fuck you, book. (laughs) You know something. You know something I'd forgotten, uh, having not read this book since sixth grade, um, and having seen the movie, the original movie from nineteen eighty nine. You know, a few times since then, I had forgotten how Gage's death is presented in the book. It's very padded, I think. You know, because he he sets it up saying that Gage only has so many weeks to live, and then when we go into the chapter, they're at the funeral. Yeah, and it's all flashback. I feel like King really steals you for that experience. You know, like really tries to do what he can yeah. to not really describe the actual thing that happens, even though he does obviously go back and and say what happens. Uh, and in the original screenplay, because he wrote the screenplay for the 1989 version, mm-hmm. he it's interesting. I went back and looked. He interspersed the scene with the father-in-law, the, the fist fight they have at the funeral. Yeah, with with the truck. So, like, you know, you were kind of seeing that and then cutting back and forth between the two scenes. It seems like King was actually really concerned about not laying it all on everybody at once, yeah. seeing this two-year-old get creamed. He yeah. famously said that he felt like this is the book of his that finally went too far. Yeah. yeah. And I, I agree with that in some ways, although this is a book that I also have an immense amount of respect I have an immense amount of respect for what Stephen King does well. I just think there's no way to enjoy this book. It seems crazy to me that, I don't know. It just felt, it just felt like too miserable for me. Can I ask you guys, did it bother either of you guys that both the book and the movie seem to not have the faintest understanding of what spinal meningitis is? Did that bother <laughs> either of you? That they seem to be confusing it with spina bifida, which is not a thing. Oh, I think, don't they say that it's spinal bifida in one of the mm-hmm. versions? Maybe, I don't know if it's the original movie or the new movie or in yeah, the I think you're right. I think you're right. I think in the 89 version, they do say it's spina bifida. Is that where they say it? Okay. I definitely heard it described that way before. Yeah, I feel like I did book. too. Yeah. Well, the, yeah. Book, yeah. the book says meningitis over and over again, and it's like, what? Meningitis kills you in like three days. You get like a fever that seems like the flu, and then you die. It's an inflammation of your brain stem and your spine, essentially, right? And you just die super quick from it. 
You don't get like gnarled up into right. a ball over the course of months. You certainly don't become like a dumbwaiter creeping monster woman, Ugh. you know? <laughs> so stupid. So fucking stupid. I will and say though, when I, when I, when I, goddamn moronic. <laughs> when I did read this book the first time, uh, and you know, the death of a kid wasn't a big deal because I was a kid, you know, I, whatever. What really got to me though, before I, you know, was a parent, obviously, was the Zelda stuff. And specifically because uh, the first stories I ever heard, you know, read to me were Bible stories, biblical stories. Yeah. And they scared the shit out of me. Yeah. But they were terrifying. They're like bedtime stories my mom would read me, you know, and I was like, oh my God, like she turned around and turned into a, a pile of salt. That's terrifying. So Stephen King using the the tale of Lazarus within this book is like, yeah. I get it. Biblical stories are scary, but Zelda especially scared the shit out of me reading the book long before I even saw the Mary Lambert movie because she's not connected with the Wendigo and the Micmac burial ground at all. You know, she's this thing that happened long ago. But she behaves like one of the revenants, you know, uh, pissing the bed on purpose and the smile in her eyes that shows that mm-hmm. she was doing on purpose. And then this shared guilt by this family that she, they, that he secretly, not so secretly, wanted her to die, wanted her to just get out of their lives and stop torturing them like they were the ones who were suffering was incredibly upsetting, you know, yeah. to think about. And that's a really powerful part. And then, of course, when she shows up at the end of the book, when Rachel at that point has not seen any of the supernatural stuff and just suddenly sees Zelda when she comes back to the house, it's like, Jesus Christ. Yeah. That was the thing that kept me up. But there's nothing, I would say that the stuff that's most upsetting and memorable and unsettling in this book is the human stuff. I think that when it's- Yeah, again, that's what I was writing when I was a kid, but but yeah, now it's different. When there's, no, when there's a scary yellow face in the bog, it's like, who gives a shit? Like, who could possibly be scared of, like, the wind was really cold, you know? I think that the stuff that's disturbing in this is is all of the human stuff. And especially, to me, reading the book, the thing that was so, bothered me so much, obviously the description of when he just barely misses Gage running into the road and talking about Gage playing the game of get away from mommy and dad, which every little kid does that game has that era where they're like like we lost my son parker at the mall he just ran away from us because he was playing that game at the mall one day and so like every parent has that experience of when their kid tries to test that boundary that's really upsetting but when the the revenant when the demon zombie creature says to judd crandall norma's in hell right that really upset me because everything else that this demon has said has been intimated has been true that everything it's predicted about the, their secrets and said about the, the four men's secrets has been true. So that this time was like, oh my God, can you imagine getting confirmation that the person you love is in hell now, is suffering eternal torment? Like getting supernatural natural conver- confirmation of that is really, really upsetting to me. As somebody who's was raised an atheist, and who was sort of raised with, yeah, not raised with, but developed my own ideas as a kid when you don't have like a constellation of heaven and hell or anything like that of like, when you die, that's probably it. You probably just return to the universe. But the idea of like getting the confirmation that like, no, some people suffer eternally and they're good people that you love, you know, is just so fucking upsetting <laughs> to me. And I think that's why it's interesting also that Judd uh, Lewis Creed, 
and his wife, Rachel, are positioned as she's, she's Jewish and he's like sort of a lapsed Methodist, that they're not religious people confronted with like really religious stuff. I think is interesting that you bring up the Bible stories in that way too, John, because the Bible stories are really upsetting, especially if you're not religious, because there's no, for me, there's no, um, if you're a believer and you hear a Bible story, well, there's good guys. Jesus and God are going to come along, you know, and save the day. If you don't have faith in Jesus and God, you just have these horrifying stories, you know? Yeah, but do you know what God will do? God will kill the firstborn son. <laughs> yeah. Even God is a fucked God, up asshole. God, I'm totally with Ellie on that. God, God will tell you to take your son up to a mountain and stab him. And if you're exactly. not going to do that, then maybe you're not a true believer, John. <laughs> maybe you don't deserve to sit at his right hand in heaven. Maybe you should be cast into a lake of fire and die the second death. What do you think about that, John? Wendigo. Join, maybe you should join. But then, but then it's the Wendigo. Like, Wendy, what, what part of this story did you find, like, along the spectrum of, do you find parts of it scary in a traditional horror movie, fun scare kind of way? Do you, or do you just find it, like, sorrowful? Like, what, what kind of different elements do you identify in that way? Yeah, I don't, this book isn't, I don't know. For some reason, reading horror doesn't come across as, like, scary to me. Yeah. Um, like, it, it's 100%. More, yeah, like, I don't really find the story scary. I find it more, um, like, scary in a, like, I'm going to put, um, the covers over my head and not be able to sleep kind of scary. I, it's, it's scary in the way of like what you'll do in lengths, you know, in terms of like the lengths that people will go to, um, to, to, to hold on to the people that they love for just even a moment more, you know, or it's, it's scary to think about those thoughts of, of dying and and you know it raises all these different questions and then you know it, it's that kind of a scary but i don't find it as like traumatic or any, anything like yeah. that like you guys both have these like personal things i don't i'm not mm, it's weird i'm not a big family person in general so whenever i read stories about or or watch movies about families i I'm a little bit off to the distance a little bit because I'm that's not. what I was asking you earlier. I was asking, yeah, I know, but I mean, but, but in terms of grief, I feel like, like everybody can I down with grief. And so I think it's an interesting way to like, just because like, I don't have a big family thing or I don't have children doesn't mean that I can't yeah. relate to the idea of grief and what you would do because of grief and loss. Um, yeah. but, but to read some of the interpersonal little details, like the sister's not really that scary to me. Like I see it as like a trauma. Yes. A very difficult trauma that this poor, I'm more of like Lewis Creed listening to the story where he's like, your parents are fucking idiots. What is yeah. wrong with them? You know, it's more of That's that. my I mean, reaction to that though too. Yeah. <laughs> and also my reaction to all that, because they kept saying spinal meningitis is dude, real spinal meningitis is so much more upsetting than this. It's just like you can get it from like a dirty subway. You know, like you just wake up one day and you have 108 degree fever and you're dead. You know, like that's much more scary than <laughs> yeah. degenerative disease and like the victory of getting to piss in your bed and make your stupid parents angry one more time. 
that's a real victory. <laughs> Wendy, let me ask you. Uh-huh. Have you ever had a beloved bull who passed away? <laughs> a be- <laughs> beloved bull uh, that came back and won. My, my, my beloved prize-winning bull. Uh, and ready. No. Yeah. <laughs> I did at um, one point have uh, hamsters that we think had a suicide pact. Because <laughs> they, like, we had like five of them or something like that. And one by one, they all committed suicide in the pool. That's um, weird because John had hamsters that had a murder-suicide pact. <laughs> oh, no. Fucking horrible. The things they did to his dogs. It was a nightmare. What the hamsters did? Oh, it was no. a murder suicide pact. Sounds like your hamsters. They got their little hamster machetes oh. to town on that chihuahua. Yeah, I would watch that movie. It sounds like your hamsters had sort of a virgin suicides thing going. Yes. Oh, my God. 100%. <laughs> no, but watch let me ask you what he Seriously, though. Virgin of virgin suicide. <laughs> I would reread that book and talk about that movie. I love both of them. But that's a good pairing with Pet Cemetery. There you go. I'm going to pitch a double feature to Alamo about that. But what I seriously wanted to ask you, Wendy, was could you love an animal that came back after being buried in the McMack burial ground? Could you love an animal that came back wrong? Uh, Probably. Mm-hmm. Probably the only downside because uh, you love that fucking asshole cat that you're now <laughs> sitting for. That cat was a goddamn dickhead, and you love that cat because <laughs> he had a sweet side. No, he didn't. Uh, he's calmed down a lot, so he's not as crazy as he used to be. Um, but yeah, I think the only problem that I always had a problem with Church after he's undead is that he apparently really smells. And smells like shit, I think. Yeah. So I'm just like, that I probably would not be happy about. Like, how many baths can you give to a cat? Well, that the description of Lewis washing his, not Lewis, of Judd watching his dog that comes back, and it's just a piece of meat that smelled bad. It's like, yeah. that sounds nightmarish. Yeah, like, well, he said that, like, yeah, Judd was like, the dog was kind of normal. He just smelled really bad and was kind of stupid. Yeah, um, I mean but that describes a lot of dogs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, honestly, describes most dogs probably. <laughs> but yeah, it's like the worst thing is that it like is bumping into walls and has, isn't very graceful anymore. That's not a problem. I can deal with that. <laughs> what do you What do you think about the supernatural elements of this, Wendy? Like the Wendigo stuff. Like, does that resonate with you at all, or does it um, resonate I, with you as a metaphor? Yeah, I love that stuff. Um, I I like supernatural tales, and uh, the Wendigo. I feel like is something that I didn't even know was a thing until maybe like a year or two ago um i was listening to a podcast that i don't listen to anymore because i can't stand the guy's voice anymore um but he um it was this podcast lore and like one of the very first episodes that dude's voice i know it's really bad but it didn't used to be so bad as it is now uh and in one of the very first episodes that he did was about the wendigo and i was fascinated by what it was i was like this sounds so cool what is this it's crazy uh and then i was um it it's weird how often it started popping up everywhere especially once i revisited uh pet cemetery um i was listening to something else and they were talking about the film ravenous which has a wendigo it's like a wendigo story as well um there's a couple different things that it keeps popping up so i I mean, I really like the supernatural stuff. Right, because Wendigo is the spirit of cannibalism, right? Is sort of the yeah, 
but, for the most uh, part yeah it's like it keeps getting passed down because once you like intake a soul then yeah you have to keep feeding this soul i don't know what it, it's very complicated sounding but <laughs> um i don't know i love i love those things better than just a plain ghost story yeah like, I, I, a plain ghost story doesn't really do anything for me i'm like oh that sucks that life was shitty for you and now you're just haunting the world um but like <laughs> some kind of weird like element or you know i mean i guess kind of the wendigo is that but it's a different culture than my culture that came up with it so it seems cooler <laughs> so you're so you're exoticizing the wendigo uh, yeah probably i'm probably exoticizing it because i know that my culture is the most basic of cultures so <laughs> Everybody else has a really cool... You're, you're, a, you're a Floridian. That's your culture. That you're <laughs> yeah. My generic Floridian American self has a really basic culture. <laughs> See, I don't find any of that stuff scary. And for me, the, the book loses me. The, the second half of this book, when it becomes more about, like, crossing the barrier and the haunted Indian burial ground stuff. See, I find, like scary Indian ghost, super basic. Like I checked out of this book pretty hard in the second half. Um, so I had the opposite reaction. I was wondering just if that works for people or not. And I know it does. It still worked for me. I think because the first half is so solid that I was in for yeah. the journey. Um, but I, I think you're right. I, I do think that oddly the first half is, is better than the second half. Um, even though the first half is crushingly boring in a lot of ways and takes forever to get there. He's but like, I liked yeah. listening to, or listen, cause I listened to the audiobook. I didn't read yeah. the book. Uh, like I like the buildup of like Judd and Lewis's friendship. Yeah. There's something there that I really enjoyed their relationship, which I feel like this new movie anyway, lost. Yeah. Like, I, I, it, it, it was really sad to not see that friendship on screen. Yeah. Um, and there's, you know, him kind of getting adjusted to small town life and stuff yeah. like that. And well, I did. I wanted to ask both of you guys about that, about the, the adaptation and why filmmakers are always trying to fix King, his stories and, and losing his voice in the process. But to me, the first half of the book, sorry not to interrupt you, Wendy. I really, no, you're totally fine. Uh, I just wanted to say about King, my impression of him, my limited impression of him, is that he is an incredibly sincere writer, that he writes in this fundamentally um, way that is truthful to his experience of the world, right? That there's sort of no bullshit to um, and no sugarcoating of like this is what I saw and I felt right. And he. I thought you were going to say nobility because I had already coined no, the no, no. noble storyteller. <laughs> yeah, no noble storyteller sincerity. I think that that's very very true. I think he is horrible at every other aspect of writing. Like he can't put a sentence together. Like he's, and his story structures are like incompetent and he, it just, his books feel like messes, but they're incredibly powerful. And I, and reading it this time, the first half I was like, God damn, this guy just doesn't know how to write. And there's those passages like, and he saw the goldenrod, that late summer tattletale, you know, that late summer gossip that comes to tattle on the fall. And it's like, Jesus Christ, dude, like you cannot have this nonsense in your book. Like somebody needs to sit you down and talk to you about like 
how to maintain an authorial voice and how to shift voice when you're portraying a character's perspective. Just really like basic writing stuff. Like when he gets called a hack, you read, I read his book and I maybe made the mistake of reading his book right after I'd been on a Patricia Highsmith kick, who's the greatest pulp writer of all time and who's in to- total command of everything she's doing. It just felt like something needs to be done about this when I was reading it. But when I got to the end of it, I felt like, you know what, that sincerity, that nobility, as you call it, have it, John, that honesty, it's such an incredibly rare quality that I think it redeems everything else. And I sort of don't know how to fix what I didn't like about this book without losing um, the stuff I did like about it. So like what you're saying, that it takes its time to develop its relationship with Judd Crandall and get him settled into town and all that, that feels all very sincere and truthful. And I, and I agree with you that it works. And so I don't know how to fix this book without damaging what I think is really valuable and special about it. Like I get why people love this book. Yeah. And and too often Judd too is kind of used by King as an uh, exposition dump, you know, when he's telling all this backstory about, you know, I mean, obviously there's no other way we would know it. Judd is literally the only character who knows about this secret burial ground. And he's the only one who can introduce these ideas and give us backstory about it. But it becomes, you know, he goes over to Judd's, he cracks a beer on the porch and then he's telling him a long winded story about, you know, his dog coming back to life. It just kind of becomes that the, the, the one phrase that I, I, I just ran over in my head again and again. I did not know what the hell it meant when you got right down to the place where the cheese binds. <laughs> the hell mean, does that mean? <laughs> when you when you wrap when you wrap cheese to let it to let it um, age, it's where the bind where the cheese binds to the to the wrapping. So what does it mean to get right down to that place? I don't know the most essential connection where two things meet. Fuck if I know. You know what? You're right. <laughs> but that's what I mean. Is there's a lot of it's and like the the book's catchphrase. You know, a man's heart is so near soil, Lewis. Like, that's so bad. Like, that's such cheeseball, bad metaphor, cheeseball bullshit. And for it to just, like, here's the signature line. It's just like, dude, this is what an idiot thinks sounds good, you know? My, my favorite repeated phrase is, engine bring my fish. <laughs> I couldn't find that. But, we, we, you know, we love to talk about King in terms of, like, the, the worst you'll get from King is a fucking mind library from... Yeah. Dreamcatcher, right? There's a literal mind library in that story where a character (laughs) can withdraw and be among the shelves of his mind library. Yeah, but the thing that I love about King is that he also knows when his shit is garbage. Like, he'll straight up tell you that Dreamcatcher is garbage. He's like, yeah, I wrote that when I was on a lot of drugs. Uh, But I also think that movie movie made out of that, I feel like has his voice more than virtually any of the movies made out of his work that I see what Stephen King is very clearly in that movie. It's just so full of Kingisms and the way it has these sort of like digressive stories that don't seem they're going to come together and like moments of extremely poor taste, like the magic alien retard. <laughs> like I can't even call him developmentally safe. Like he's not a, he, he's not suffering from some human condition. Right. I like mean, caricature of like, King is very fond of his magical Negroes, so instead, yeah. at that time, he used the magical 
alien. Yes, mentally challenged human being. Yes. But he's not a human being and he's not mentally yes, challenged. Yes, 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 There's yeah. no proper word for it. Yeah, you're right, he, you're right. He's a it's cartoon just, of right. a thing that exists only as like the pop cultural concept of right. that. You know, yeah. I don't want to keep repeating this word like I'm trying to get clicks for being an edgelord. You know what I mean? Like that. <laughs> oh, he's got problems with that. The magical Negro problem is yeah. even King. Yeah. Um, but, but kind of circling back around to what started this and the idea of people fixing Stephen King and their adaptations. I'm actually fascinated by adaptations of King and yeah. what they change. I think it's interesting. I think there's something thematic in King that's enriched. One of the things for me in this particular story is the truck, right? The trucks that are passing. Yeah. Uh, the Onico trucks that go back and forth between the house. Orinco trucks that go back and forth. Um, in the movie, you uh, the original, the 1989 movie, the sequence where Gage is killed, you follow the truck as it leaves, you know, from its, uh, origin, from its origin all the way to when it hits the young boy. And you really get the sense of this truck as this... Uh, unstoppable inevitability right this this force of nature this fate that's just going to be coming that it was always destined to end up killing this boy and in stephen king movies a topic i love to talk about is that trucks and and giant vehicles are always used like that as these these ominous things so to the point that king when he adapt when he made his own movie directed his own film maximum overdrive made a story about evil trucks you know yeah um, and you don't get that from the book. It's not like really going over the book, you know, what these trucks, you know, what these trucks represent, but like you get that sense in the movie, which yeah. I think is interesting. Another thing is, um, S- Stephen King animals don't fare too well in Stephen King books in general. Um, Wendy, I apologize to have to go through this list, but gassed cats and apt pupil, murder dog and needful things, Dog torture in Tommyknockers, electrocuted dog in Under the Dome, squashed mouse in the Green Mile. But when the movies come along, I feel like there's a trilogy of Stephen King cat movies, um, Cat's Eye mm-hmm. and Sleepwalkers, yeah. the other two. And in those movies, the cats are the heroes. And, you know, they, they, end the, they end the movie. They kill the monster, you know? They, they don't, they're not the monster themselves. So that's another interesting thing of when King goes to the movies, when they put him on screen, these animals aren't, you know, victims. They're the heroes. Yeah. You got to be a fan of those movies, right, Wendy? Uh, I adore Sleepwalkers. I think it's so great. Um, yeah, I, I adore Sleepwalkers. Because um, you're a huge actually- Manchinamic fan. I, hey, I am a fan of hers. Thank you very much. I like Twin Peaks. I oh, she was like my teen super crush. Yeah, I'm glad that she's on Riverdale now. <laughs> I think good for her. She's great. Uh, <laughs> but uh, can I, can I, I, ask I you? totally forgot what I was going to say, so never mind. Yeah, because yeah. I keep interrupting. Yeah. <laughs> fucking dickhead. Um, why, Wendy, why do you think... Do you, do you agree with the sentiment first that filmmakers always seem like it's not just that they're adapting his work. It always feels to me like people are trying to fix it, like locate the problems in it and fix it. Why do you think that's true? And why do you think they do that? Why do you think people approach such a mega popular, bottomlessly successful uh, writer 
and want to change his stuff so radically, like even we can talk some about the new version of Pet Cemetery. Like, do you think there's any good reason? Why, you, why Norma? Why Norma Crandall is not in either Norma, movie? Why? Why instead of Gage, it's the daughter that gets killed, the eight-year-old daughter? Well, I think like I mean, in general, I think it's really. Um, I think in general, it's just, it's, it's gotta be so hard to just adapt a book into a film anyway. Um, And then I think with King, because he does give so much background in his books that a lot of that just, you can't film all of that. Like you can't (laughs) film every talk that they've had on the front porch. You can't. So you can have it be Gage. Killed. Yeah, no, 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 and I, I honestly like for the new film. I think that they they killed the daughter instead, um, purely because it's easier to work with a nine year old, a ten year old than it probably is to get a four year old to do the things. Even though the first film did it, but I think but that was the great Nico Hughes. Yeah, and I think that like it's probably super hard uh, to do it nowadays. Uh, I. I I mean, it's not hard nowadays. I don't know what I'm saying that for. Um, but like... <laughs> I, I, can, can you, but can you point to a single change that the movie made to the book that improved it? No. No. I rest my case, Your Honor. No. No, yeah, I mean, I just think, yeah. I think it's really hard to adapt Stephen King stuff. I, I don't yeah. know why it's so hard, um, but it you, is. I think that they always want to make it. His books, to me, the ones yeah. that I've read anyway, aren't necessarily like I said, scary. It's more about like the ideas behind it, and so yeah. they all want to be. These adaptions want to be more like jump scares and more like, oh my god, I have to look over my shoulder when I get home, like walking home tonight. <laughs> well, I was really surprised by this movie when I finally read the book that. Church is not like an evil, scary demon cat. Right. Which the movie, you know, the and even the Lambert make it out that way, the, the 89. I was very surprised. He's just like a dummy, you know? Right. He's just like uh, sort of he's not... stupid, brings around dead birds. Not graceful. But he's yeah. not like this monster thing. Sorry, but uh, can I ask you, what what movie do you think captures King's voice the best? Do you think there's a movie that's like a standout for capturing what he does then? Um, and actually, uh, I'm going to go back for a second and say that I do like that the new movie did do that to church in a weird way. I yeah. like that he kind of became this overlord to evil, but that's just because I like to see an evil cat in film. It has nothing to do with the storytelling. Yeah. Um, but the, the uh, your other question, um, I'm trying to think of all the films I've seen. Like, I do like, I've never read whatever Sleepwalkers is based on. Um, it's not based on anything. Original screenplay. Oh. oh, is that an original? I thought his only one. Oh, that's right. Okay. Um, <laughs> I do love Maximum Overdrive, even though it's a trash film. But again, that's based on, he wrote that. Yeah, it's very king. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to think of other films of his that, like... I, know, I haven't my, seen my pick is Nightflyer. Nightflyer? I've never seen Nightflyer. I mean, Stand By Me is really good. Uh, I, I haven't seen the new It. I, I think I saw the made-for-TV version back when it aired. 
the Thank Stephen you. King, the Stephen King movie that feels the most Stephen King is Graveyard Shift. And that's just because the main that. accents are so goddamn <laughs> That's You can slip on them. Yeah, there you go. I felt like I was going to be able to drinking main accents. <laughs> oh, you know what? I think Cujo is probably a better yeah. movie than a book. Because I remember trying to get through that book and I, I, I stopped reading it because I didn't think it was good. It was that my least one. favorite one when I was a kid. Yeah, I don't think it's a great book, but it's a good movie. When we did, when we had King at the theater, he wanted to screen Cujo. He asked to screen Cujo. He said that it was at the moment his favorite adaptation of any of his work. And he that felt makes like, sense. He felt like Dee Wallace deserved an Academy Award for oh. her performance, which I agree with. And he said, if this, yeah. she did this in anything but a horror movie, she would have Yeah, I, recently um, she was on the She Kills podcast. Yeah. Uh, and she was talking about that film. And she said that, like, that's that part where she's yelling at her son to just like her, the son is like I want my daddy I want my daddy and she just has to yell at him she's like we'll get you your daddy just calm down like she's like yeah that was in the script and I did it and then afterwards they were like maybe we're gonna not have you do this because we think it makes you unlikable and she's like um if anybody's a parent watching this movie they've had that thought and they've maybe yeah. done it to their child she's like it's the most relatable part of this film oh 100 <laughs> percent and so that's you know why the, they kept it in there you know the kid dies at the end of the book he doesn't make it oh really oh yeah. see i didn't finish the books so i didn't know that's what do you what do you change. think about even in Pet Cemetery, his early attempt to do the Stephen King extended Castle Rock universe with having the references to Cujo and The Shining in there. How do you guys feel about that? I don't mind it in King's books. I mean, he became insane when he started, when he came back to the Dark Tower books because everything he wrote from that point on had a Dark Tower reference in it because he established his idea of these different realities and things, you know, taking place on different levels of the tower. The, the, the tower, the center of everything that controls the universe. Oh my God. I just remembered. I can't even remember what they called. I've read more Stephen King. Those two matching books where the one takes... Desperation and the Regulators, yeah. Yes. Those are truly terrible. Those are not good ones. I feel like, did uh, did either one of you guys read Sleeping Beauties? I feel like he made yeah. references to himself in that one too. Even though it's written with his son, he wrote it with his son. I haven't read that one. This one, Pet Cemetery, he makes references to himself because he has yeah. someone say, all work and no play make Jack a dull boy. That's what I'm saying. And Cujo, oh, does he really? That's and funny. Cujo, he says, there was the, those four people got killed up the road by that dog, got bit by a bat, went rabbit. <laughs> yeah, but, but even that is like, you know, that's just taking place in the same world. But for to have a character say specifically, all work and no play sounds like he's actually quoting The Shining like Stephen King exists as a fiction writer in that reality. Yeah. So it's all over the place. But let me just say about the new movie and the twist, the, the change, making it Ellie instead of Gage. I've been surprised that everyone treats it like, wow, what a huge, that just blows my mind that they made that change. Did you guys not get the feeling reading the book that he's setting us up to think that Ellie is going to be the one to die? since Ellie is the one who's always talking to Lewis about death and obsessed with death and goes through the stuff with church. And we sort of forget about Gage being this little toddler in the background so that when it turns out to be Gage who dies, it's almost a bit of a twist right there that we may have been expecting Ellie to be the one to die rather than Gage. I'll so by changing it, it makes it seem like 
well, you just did what was obvious, <laughs> you yeah. know, like it's not an interesting twist. King had the interesting twist, you know? I really felt like reading the book. I really felt like, again, this is where I get the filmmaker's impulse to fix things. And when I say, I don't know how to fix this book without damaging what's good about it. I kept thinking this should be Ellie's story. This whole thing should be from her perspective. She should hear from kids or Judd Crandall about the pet cemetery and that you can bury your cat and bring it back to life. And she should do that. And that should give her dad the idea to bury the son later on. It just all felt like this should be her story, not the dad's, was the impulse I had the entire time while reading it, then watching the movie even more so. Because that actor, Jason Clark, I don't know who thought he should be a movie star. <laughs> but just like the less the camera's on him, the better. And the actress is an interesting young actress. She does a, a fairly interesting job with it. But it felt like this should be her movie. This should be about the strange world of kids and their relationship to their pets and their sort of dreamy relationship to death and resurrection and life and the reality of the real world. You know, it just, it felt... It felt like that would be the natural approach in the way that it's the natural approach for it. You know what I mean? Or stand by me. It just felt like, why is this not about her? I mean, I, I liked <laughs> I, I liked that actress. I thought that the girl in the film was really good. Um, you know, in the beginning, I was like, oh, it's just a kid actress, whatever. But when she turns evil, I was like, oh, this little girl's got chops. Look at her go. Um, yeah. But I mean, as far as like what it is in the film, like I... I but then you lose the part where it's Ellie that has this like weird psychic bond with her father and like this death world. And as the one being to her mother, like really uncomfortable and being like, there's something wrong. You need to go back or like, you know, freaking out so much that the mother does go back. Um, she's the one that sees the dead student. What's his name? Um, Pascal, uh, you know, all, all these things. So you lose that aspect, unfortunately. And you, then instead you just have like this little kid in a crib yelling about that. He can see a ghost and therefore the mom goes back. Like, I don't think so. Like (laughs) that didn't really work for me. Um, but I thought she was a good actress. So good for her, I guess. I don't know. Um, she was really cute when they brought her out and interviewed her at the screening that I went to. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I thought it was really inappropriate that you yelled at her though, bring the cat back out. <laughs> I know. I did. I was really me. angry that it didn't come back out. And Jason Clark is like, uh, he doesn't know how to move his neck in this movie. It was really bothering me that he <laughs> didn't move his neck at all. He just kept moving his whole body to look. Um, and at the screening, he came out looking like um, like a drunken beatnik writer of the 60s. His hair was all floppy and mess, and he had like a whiskey and a glass, and it was kind of hilarious. But yeah, I thought he was totally wrong in this movie. I, I didn't, I didn't like him at all. As like, the jock who gets a part in the school play, you know? Yeah. Like, like he got this part because he's like in with people, like that he knows people, but he's not an actor. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I think he's wrong for the role because he inherently looks kind of evil. So you need to have a dad that has like softer features um, that makes a change in his life to do these really traumatic and yeah. you know, awful things. Um, 
as opposed to some guy that you look at and you're like, yeah, he kind of looks douchey. I bet he would bury his child so that he comes back to life. Uh, that kind of thing. <laughs> so it's not surprising at all. Everything Chris was talking about, uh, not working about the story, you know, the spook factor is what this, these new filmmakers were interested in. They were not interested in. But there was no scares film, in this you know? film. But yeah. they were all cheap scares. It was all like, you know, yeah. cat yeah. scares. Just and, loud noises. And Zelda yeah. in the, they made Zelda completely unscary. Zelda, you know, besides me being a, a sixth grader who got terrified by her in the book, our friend Marcus Penn considers her in the 1989 movie the scariest thing that's yeah. ever been put on film. They made her not scary in this movie. They made her completely dumb and cheap and stupid. Well, I don't know why they did the dumbwaiter thing. Like the that made the thing was so dumb. It made no it sense to me at all. I was like, I think it's scarier to just walk in and see like a dead body and being like, ah, yeah. and the child is tra- traumatized by having to sit there with this dead body for eight hours or whatever. We also need to get wig work on the case with that little girl's outfit and terrible hair. Like, what was the idea with that? Oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. a little goblin. She was, yeah, like, she was like a little that? weirdo. Yeah. Well, just yeah. like all the stuff with the kids in the masks. The little... That was wasted, what too. What was like, that? What was that supposed like, to be? Who are these kids? Are they revenants? What? I, <laughs> exactly. That part Those made are... sense. You don't understand. In that little town, uh, they have the, um, what is it fucking called? The one night a year when all crimes are legal and people put on masks. The purge. Yeah, those were, those were the Purge kids. They moved to this little <laughs> town on the night of the Purge. They didn't know it. This those movie kids, definitely it, shares the Purge. Had, those kids had killed all those animals. And that's what they were out there. They were out there on their purge. Parents, this this movie shares with the Purge an idea that scary masks are scary. Well, that's the thing is like little kids in scary masks, like maybe 15 years ago, you could have gotten away with it. This but, by, but by the end of the movie, sorry, Wendy, go ahead. No, I was just like, I just don't see kids going off to bury their animal wearing these masks and having like having a procession. Yes. Like, let's do it like the beginning of um, the three lives of Tom- Thomasia. Thomasina, yeah. yeah, exactly. Like, that's a great cat funeral procession. Oh, you know what and, it made like, me think this? of? This? No. You know what made me think of was Claws for Alarm, the Looney Tunes, uh, where the, <laughs> the mice have the funeral procession yeah. with the cats. That's all I could think of. So we do, we should wrap this up, guys, but I did just want to say before we stop slagging this movie, I have not hated a song in a long time as much as I hated that Ramones cover at the end. <laughs> I have not despised, like, fuzzy indie pop reimagining of late Ramones mediocrity much as I, I hated that song so much I don't even remember it really and I saw mm, I have a confession to make I saw this movie twice Yeah, <laughs> because the first time I saw it was at the the screening where I got free tickets for uh, Fangoria uh, to go see it and I had a glass of wine before and then they gave you two free drinks during and so like afterwards I kept thinking like the next day my friend that I saw it with was like thought it was like a good movie and I was just like am I wrong like did I just was it the alcohol that made me think that everything just went super fast in this movie and kind of wasn't scary and not really great and all the people acting in it like were bad choices I mean I love John Lithgow um, but like yeah, I feel but like the parents were weird. Um, and so like, then I was like, you know what? 
I also have AMC Stubbs. I'm just going to go see it for free again. <laughs> so I went and go, saw it a second time, and I still had the same feelings. <laughs> just totally misses the point, you know? Yeah. By, yeah. The, by the end, when it becomes like what? The burial grounds now an easy bake oven for ghouls. They're just going to like build an army. I know that part. Yeah, I just was like, I kept reading things that like friends of mine that had seen it that were like, oh, it's really good. It's a great adaptation, and I was like, did we see the same movie? Wow, that's weird. Yeah, whatever it is, it's a terrible adaptation. Whatever it is, like whatever the problems of the book are, and I. I gotta emphasize, I really respect the book, you know? I have no respect for this movie. That movie, yeah. just, it has nothing to do with the book. It couldn't have less to do with the book. It took, like, the I basic agree. plot outline and then just had its fun. You need some new friends, Wendy Mays. That's <laughs> what I think. Apparently. I just have people that are too soft on movies, and I thought I was soft on movies. Uh, no way. Shall we move on? to our dessert selections, something to eat after this movie to, uh, to go out on a more delightful note. Something <laughs> to tap the meal. And we'll yes. let you go last, Wendy. Okay. So I will go first this time, John, or do you want to go first? No, please, go right ahead. I think that you guys, that everyone in the world should watch another movie that's uh, about parents and grief and the death of a child and how it affects family and after a, a christmas tale on no desplechans movie with matthew almalric which is essentially about these parents who have a child because their oldest child has a rare disease and they can't find a donor for the cure so they have another kid hoping he'll be the right kind of donor and he is not and the oldest child dies, and it's about years later, this family getting together for Christmas. And it really reminded me, the book, the best parts of the book, the most sincere parts of the book, the noblest parts of the book, the most honest parts of the book, reminded me of this movie just about grief and trauma and how it affects family and how it affects your relationships to your family and all of that sort of thing. And it's a movie that's like, nasty in a way that a horror novel can be really nasty when talking about family. And if I picked my boyfriends back to show like the idiotic version of what we were talking about, I picked this to sort of defend myself when I say King is not a good writer, he's kind of a hack, all of these sort of things, to pick a really like high art contrast to it, you know, to pick a, th- a film that's incredibly beautiful and intricate and delicately put together and complicated as, as a contrast uh, to what I'm talking about and sort of defend myself in some way. And then you can see this movie, Be Like It Sucked, He's an Idiot, I Was Right About King, That Guy's a Jabroni. It's perfect. John, what's your selection? That's, uh, that's a fantastic movie. Although, like, I'm guessing most viewers like me heard you say A Christmas Story initially. <laughs> did, did I say A Christmas Story? No, no, but that's oh, just hey, what, Jesus. what you said well, Christmas Story. Oh, that's immediately what my mind told me. Come to Noel. Well, I'll be curious to hear this. Um, <laughs> I'm also picking another movie, which I think is maybe the best version of Pet Cemetery out there. Um, it's, it's, I bury the living. It's not even a great movie, but uh, 
that's a good one but it's one i like and i was surprised by it's um henry hobson's maggie oh with, uh arnold schwarzenegger and abigail breslin oh it's you know especially with the new one changing it to the daughter being the one who comes back kind of uh links those together even more specifically but maggie is not a horror movie even though it's set in a post-apocalyptic zombie uh setting it's a story about a man watching his daughter die and it's very affecting um and has great performances schwarzenegger is so yeah. good in it and breslin's very good and it's just uh hits the same themes as pet cemetery just in terms of grief and how people deal with it and you know with the supernatural element obviously added in but with the really powerful part of it being the human emotions and the human feelings and i feel like it's kind of an underrated film that more people should see so if like me you absolutely despise this new version of pet cemetery i would steer you toward that film i think it's a great selection john i haven't seen it so that's a good recommendation yeah that's good What do you got, Wendy? Um, so I went, I'm kind of the reverse of Chris, where I went with a serious beginning, and now I'm going with a silly end. And I think if uh, people want to have a fun with this kind of theme, go watch Reanimator. Um, uh, it's a better yes. way of bringing dead bodies back to life. <laughs> go watch Reanimator is always good advice. Exactly. Yeah, characters making bad decisions, even though they know <laughs> they're the wrong decisions. That's right. You even have a cat coming back to life. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So why not watch Reanimator instead? The beloved Stuart Gordon cult film. They practically have the same ending, right? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Um, yeah, that's my choice. I do. I don't. I feel like I don't even have to explain it. I feel like everybody should know Reanimator. If they haven't seen Reanimator, um, they should stop listening to us immediately and go rent it somehow. Download yeah. something. Buy a copy. Yeah, just go buy a copy. Yeah, you're gonna want to have it after you see it. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So that's my my go to. People go watch Reanimator instead. Stay away from the sequels, though. Yeah, <laughs> I haven't seen any of those. They're far away. Some of them are. Uh, I can appreciate something in them. I, I, downgraded, <laughs> I downgraded that. So I was going to say some of them are fine. And I was like, some of them have something interesting in them. And I just had to keep downgrading, John. You're right. Stay away from them. <laughs> some of them are not without entire lack of virtue well wendy thank you so much for coming on and doing this show and listening to a book for us yeah and thanks for having me on you guys john anything you wanted to add <laughs> uh just yes wendy thank you so much what's what's <laughs> the next episode of pet cemetery can you can you announce it to us or uh yeah it'll be the, the the next one and probably the last one for a while um uh but the i'm doing uh the hills have eyes Oh. Um, I just need to finish editing it, but it should come out this week. A great but... selection. Yeah. And we should also mention that in addition to doing Pet Cinematary, you also host co-host the Losers podcast that looks at the people who were nominated for, nominated for Academy Awards but did not win them. And that's going really strong. You guys are putting out an incredible amount of episodes on that. Absolutely. Our- Delightful. Absolutely love it. Yeah. And <laughs> hey. I, I mean, and obviously... Pet Cemetery is going to win all of the Academy Awards it's nominated for, so we won't have a chance to talk about it. I'm going to have to watch it again and just talk about like what a great actor Jason Clark is. 
Actually, the cat might win an award, I bet. <laughs> at the end of the year. There's a lot of cat. Hey, you know what? I'm I don't know. There's a lot of good cat acting going on in Hollywood right now. So maybe maybe they won't win the award, but who knows? Is there, wait, wait. Is there a specific animal acting award that you watch for each year? Am I not? Well, this? Yeah, there's like the, um, the you know how there's the palm door? They give out the paws duo. Oh, yes. That kind of thing. Um, yeah, it, it's like that. And then there's like the dog, Os- you know, what they call the dog Oscars. Um, the, the dogsters? The dogsters, yeah. <laughs> there's, you know, there's they, they do awards and end of the year summaries of animal stuff. Thank you, Wendy. Thank you to our Patreon subscribers, listeners uh, for our next pulp podcast for next uh, month. We're going to be looking into author H. Werner Dixon, hard-boiled novelist of the 50s uh, with guest filmmaker Stephen Scheel, which is going to be real interesting. We don't know which title we're going to be talking about, uh, but it will be one of those obscure uh, books. So thanks, everybody. Have a great time. Thank you again, Wendy, for being on the show. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me, you guys. Thanks, Wendy. Yeah, thank y'all. Thank you to your cats for not disrupting the show. That one did meow during, I don't know if it got picked up. On it did. When, talking about, when you were talking about dogs being dumb, it like <laughs> jumped in and was like, meow. <laughs> <laughs> I know Joe meowed at one point, but I think one of you guys was talking. So I'm like, oh, that's an easy edit out. Or keep it in. It'll be fun. <laughs> I, think, I think you are expecting a much more higher level of editing to be applied to this than will be. <laughs> Wendy, thanks for doing this for real. And, yeah, no, thanks for having me on, you guys. It was fun. Cool. Super fun. Thank you. 